which means follow this. They have, Romans 1 makes clear, they have knowledge of God, of this God. And they, like Isaiah and like all of us, have rebelled against this God. And woe is upon them. They are lost. And you know how they can be found. You have. You, I'm talking to right where you're sitting, not just the person in front of you, beside you, behind you. You, you know how they can be saved forever. So I implore you, in your life and your family, no matter what age or stage you are, to rise before this God and say, here I am, send me. How could there be any other option than to say, I'll, I'll pray however, I'll give whatever, I'll go wherever. Some people might be tempted to think, well, this is just going, this is too, I'm not ready for this kind of level in my, my relationship with Christ. This is for the more mature. This is basic elemental Christianity. This is Luke 9. If you're going to follow me, deny yourself, pick up a cross and follow me. This is what it means to follow Christ. You have sacrificed. We have Christians sacrificed the right to determine the direction of our lives. We don't call the shots anymore. All of our resources are his. All of our time, all of our money, and our future. It all belongs to him. You hear a video like that and you realize, that's why Mike didn't say it himself. David Platt is president of the IMB, uh, basically in charge of international missions uh, for our denomination, and he gives a plea there that we would take serious our responsibility to do all that we can to bring this hope, this great expectation that we've been talking about to the world. This Thursday night, uh, yeah, Thursday night, right? Christmas Eve. Uh, we will be taking an offering, and all of the offering we bring in will be going to Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, which basically is a funding of international missions. The presentation of the gospel to every man, woman, and child throughout the world. So I would encourage you, as you consider our heart, our vision, our understanding of the nature and purpose of the church and how, Christian, or, and how Christians and discipleship play an instrumental role into that. And even as you hear this plea from Pastor Platt, consider uh, prayerfully and yet sacrificially a gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, it is consistent with who we are and really in keeping with what we need to be doing in partnering with the church across the globe to present the hope of eternal life to a world that is sadly and tragically facing anything but that. Can we prayerfully consider that? And even a small gift together adds up, amen, to something that we can do to partner with missionaries in the spreading of the gospel across the world. Let's do that together. 
This morning, we are continuing and ending our series in Revelation uh, that we've called The Great Expectation. And uh, as we continue that, uh, you can open up your Bibles to Revelation 21, uh, verse 9. We are going to um, read there through 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 5. But, you know, uh, I wonder if we could start by just thinking about this question. What is heaven going to be like? How would you answer that? I know you talk to some of your friends, uh, maybe in college or high school, or just goofing off, you may say, you know, well, we're going to be hanging out together, doing what we do, relaxing in the sun, and that's what heaven's going to be like. I remember as a kid getting a little bummed out about the prospect of heaven. I've shared that already. First of all, uh, you know, I wanted to be married and have a nice life first before Jesus returned. You heard about that. But, you know, as an eight-year-old boy thinking about heaven and, you know, running into Christians who explain it as, well, we're just going to be singing and worshiping forever. And I thought, no basketball in heaven? Surely there's basketball in heaven. That's the heaven I would envision. You may have your activity or your favorite thing to do that if you were to talk about paradise, some uh, eternal bliss that you would describe heaven like that. You'd say, you know, uh, you know we're going to be reading on a couch with coffee forever. Ah, with no voices saying mommy <laughs> or daddy. <laughs> well, what is heaven really like? You know, there's a lot of answers out there, a lot of speculation about what we can expect heaven to be like. But let's go to the scripture, shall we? And, and let all, you know, not every question that we have, whether it be basketball, whether it, not any of those questions are going to be answered today. I'm sorry. But the questions that God wants to answer will be, right? He does tell us, give us a picture of what heaven will be like. So let's turn there and listen to what John records in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, 22, verse 5. John says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with, with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the 12 tribes were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length 
and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates had a, made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Some of you are laughing because I have no idea what those jewels are. I'm sorry. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There will, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. And all God's people said to this word. Amen. I've heard this once heard it twice. I've heard it a gazillion times. Maybe you have too. The church is a business. Raise your hand if you've heard somebody say that before in some way, shape, or form. The church is a business. There's always a, a metaphor out there that we're trying to find to maybe explain the, this thing we call church. If you run into someone who's familiar with the scriptures, what kind of metaphors might you hear to describe the identity of the church? Tell me. The bride. What's that? The body. The bride of the Lamb. We've been talking about that. The, bri uh, the, the, the body of Christ. Is there another one? A couple more maybe? A building. That's right. 
anymore. Family, absolutely. Family. Right? There are metaphors that give us an indication that we can interact with to understand the nature of the church, the identity of the church. That's what somebody is saying when they say the church is a business. I think I understand where these well-intentioned people are going, but I don't think that that's really an accurate statement about the nature of the church, at least not a primary understanding of the church for sure. I think it's important that we know what the Bible teaches about who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. And not only that, I think it's equally important, and actually I think informs our present understanding to know what will the church be in the end. There's a church as we are, a church as we will be. We know we're not completely there yet. Even as we call ourselves the body of Christ, the bride of the Lamb, the temple, the building, we recognize that in our spiritual state, although on a journey, empowered by the Spirit, we've not arrived yet. And 1 John says, we don't really know what we will be yet. You understand? So the question becomes for us, in the end, who will we be? I think the scriptures here give us clear indication as to what kind of metaphor is to be used for the church, the people of God. The church here is envisioned as a city. Verse 9 and 10. Right, It says, the, the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. There's that metaphor. We've heard it before, chapter 19, chapter uh, 21. The bride of the Lamb. But then immediately after that, he carries uh, John away. Is that going to catch on fire? He carries John away to a high mountain. And what does the angel show him? Help me out. I want to show you the bride of the Lamb. But, so here, let's go. And where does he take him, and what does he show him? A city. He sees a holy city coming out of heaven from God. You see here, the church is envisioned as a holy city. The holy city of God. The question now becomes, as we understand ourselves as the holy city of God, what kind of city will that be? That's what we want to know. I, I spent some time in New York City. Some of you may have seen it on Facebook this week. Spent some time with a family in New York City. And now, let me tell that's a city. You know what I mean? Clearly, Syracuse is the greatest city in the world. We all understand that. I mean, of course. But I mean, this city's something else. It's massive. It's gorgeous. It shines bright. It is a city. And so as I'm there recognizing I'm preaching on the holy city of God, I'm looking at the city of the world in many ways. The representation of the glory of man on display in massive structures. Engineering, lighting, beauty. All this world offers at its best. That's a city. And it's interesting to me that this is the very metaphor that the end gives us about who we will be, who we are. We're the holy city of God. And as I was realizing that there's this contrast between New York City and the greatest city in the world, Syracuse, that's for Bill, wherever he is, who should not be moving. 
the greatest city in the world, there is massive contrast in size, <laughs> in glory, in brightness, in, in hope. Like, we can do this in New York. Like, Syracuse is like, man, GE left like 20 years ago. It's completely different, completely different place. And as we begin to look at this metaphor of the city of God being the people of God, understand that what John is really doing is he's setting a contrasting city to the city that he mentioned in chapter 17. So if you go back quickly to chapter 17, we're seeing that really the point of this metaphor that John is giving us is to set in contrast the holy city of God. And what John says in Revelation 17 is the great prostitute, the city of Babylon. Look at what he says there. Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Verse 1, right? And he's talking about Babylon. You see, the angel with this, the seven bowls is, all that, is bringing John in 17 to see the great prostitute. Now he's saying, let me show you the holy city of God. Let me show you the difference between the city that my people will be in the end and the city that was just judged on the basis of my righteousness and my vindication of my people. There is a fundamental, a substantive difference between the holy city of God and the great prostitute, the best this world has to offer. This morning, I'm going to give you seven. You're like, oh man, it's going to be long. Seven descriptions of heaven. Seven descriptions of what the holy city of God will be like. Seven descriptions that explain to you what your home in heaven will be like. Is that exciting? If it's not, we got issues. Beyond worried about the length of Mike's sermon. The first one is this. The holy city of God is much different than the best city that this world has to offer. It's much different. It's much more glorious. It's much better. We see three things after this that show us what that contrast is. What is the big difference about the city of God, the people of God, and the city of this world, the people of the great prostitute? Well, first of all, we see that the holy city of God is defined by the glory of God. Look at what verse 11 says, right? This holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It is having the glory of God. It's radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. The glory of God is what defines the city of God. All that He is, the fullness, the weight of who God is, is that which defines the city of God. Really, when you think about it, it's what is the, the clothing of the bride? We looked at the clothing to be the gown, right? The, the bride was ready. She's got her clothes. She's got her gown. She's ready to put them on. And that's the righteous deeds of the saints. You remember that, chapter 19? But we see here that the city of God, the bride of the Lamb, is literally clothed with the glory of God. That's her clothing. The glory of God. 
We've talked often about what is it that, that defines Syracuse. Some might say snow. Not this year. Yet. <laughs> Some might say, well, wise people might say, Syracuse basketball. It's our glory. It's all we got, man. As good, as bad as they are. Syracuse basketball. We're the orange. Some, no amens there? I mean, are you people from here? How about North Syracuse? What defines North Syracuse? You drive into town and you see on the sign, right? The first plank road in America. What is it that defines us? Again, most of those descriptions are based on the glory of man, the best we've come up with. And then you set that in contrast to what the city of God will be clothed with. What will define it? Imagine the city of God being a place where the glory of God is its def defining characteristic. That's what heaven's like. The glory of men is nowhere to be found. It's the glory of God that defines the fabric of what it is. The holy city of God is defined by the glory of God. And it is not our prayer, is it not our prayer that Syracuse would be known, that North Syracuse would be known for so much more than a basketball team, so much more for, than the white stuff that falls incessantly for months? Is it surely our desire that, that North Syracuse and these suburbs be known for much more than the first plank road, not to discount the history of what is here and what's meaningful? Is it not our prayer that the glory of God would, that defines the city of God, invade our time even now. And that people across the world would look at Syracuse, at Onondaga County, and say, that is a place where God is. The defining clothing, the defining characteristic of this place would be the glory of God. And we know that the glory of God, John chapter 1, in, in, is found in the person of Jesus. I think about it. It's like the city of God will be defined by the glory of God. just means that it will be all about Jesus when we're there. And this glory of God is shining so bright, it's removing the need of the sun or the moon. What a wild thing to say. Do you recognize that we need the sun? How many of you scientists are out there? How many of you care? Like, I'm, I'm not a big scientist. But you recognize, right, that you need the sun to live. You need the moon. you got to have it to sustain all these cycles. Look it up. I don't know. I was reading hoop dreams during science class. You know what I mean? That's why I didn't get my region science, you know. Figured, I don't know, 85, I could still play on the basketball team. Who cares? So, you need the sun. You need light. You got to have it. But in the, in the new city, it's not even there. Why? Because something else is sustaining its life. Something else is behind all that is taking place and making sure that all that needs to happen physically, biologically is taking place in such a way to sustain human life. Guess what it is? It's just God. 
It's his glory. It's so powerful and so definitive that we don't even need the sun and the moon anymore. They become irrelevant to the new order. I can't imagine that. But that's the truth. So we see that the holy city of God is defined by his glory, but it's also filled with his presence. I saw no temple in this city, text says, later on, verse 22. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple was the place where people went, the physical structure where people went to be with God. In order to be in his presence, they had to go to the temple. There were walls and courts and rules and guidelines. And this person could go here. That person has to stay out. There was an obstacle to the presence of God. Even now, we, uh, as, as the people of God, there's distance in terms of physical presence with God. My children ask me all the time, as we talk about the things of the faith, they say, well, where is Jesus? You're telling me to believe in him, but I don't see him. Where is he? Well, in, in, in measure, he, he's here by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's not visible. But in a very real way, Jesus is not here. That's why you don't see him. Do you recognize that? Jesus is not physically present here. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven. He's coming. That's our great expectation. But he's not here. So what we see is when he returns and he inaugurates and brings about this new city... It comes from him, made of us the people of God. Guess what? There will be no physical obstacle to the presence of God. But that's it. There'll be nothing between us, no wall, no curtain, thanks to Jesus. Nothing that separates us. Sin has been dealt with. The righteous deeds of the saints have been vindicated. And so now there's nothing separating us physically in this city, from the presence of God. It's defined by His glory. And it's filled, filled, the whole city, not just the structure known as the temple, is filled with the presence of God. Do you hope for this? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Number four, the holy city of God will include all of his people. Simply put, none will be left out in the city of God. All those who believe, who belong, who follow, who obey, who are faithful to the end, all of God's people will be there. You may say, well, I make it. If you are God's people, you will be there. You say, how do you know that? It's like, well... Look at verse 15. Actually, if you go back to verse 12 through uh, 21, we see uh, these gates, and we see the wall, we see foundations, we see the measuring of the city. I'm not able to go into every single detail regarding all of these things, but here's the truth that we can't miss. Right? You look at the, the 12 gates, of this wall. The gates, there are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 12 tribes, right? And then you also have the 12 uh, 
foundations, which were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we see Israel, we see the apostles, we see the totality, that number 12, the totality of the fully redeemed community. You see 12,000 stadia. It's length, width, and height are all equal. 144, 12 times 12. Right? The, the 12 jewels. You get the idea here that there's this representation in the city of God of all of His people. The full number of the redeemed community will be present in the city of God. None will be left behind. Not even the nations. Look at verse 24. By its light, the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Lest we think that it's just Israel, let us think again. But also the believing Gentiles. That all of Christ's people will be there. Bringing their honor, bringing their glory, bringing all that they are to the city of God. No one will be left behind. Now please don't misunderstand this. This does not mean that everyone will be there. As you read that, the kings and the nations. That doesn't mean that everyone will be there. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, as John has often done throughout Revelation, is that every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and language will be represented into the people of God. And the believing Israel, faithful Israel, will also be represented in the people of God. That every man, woman, and child that has been saved through the blood of Jesus and faith in it will be present in the city of God. Satan will snatch none out of his hand. Do you expect that? Who are you concerned for even now? Are they going to make it? Them, really? Look, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of falling into spiritual pit holes, potholes, understand this, that the one who began a work of salvation in the hearts of people will bring it to completion. None will be able to snatch out of his hand. He will bring his own to his city. We should have that assurance, that confidence, and it will be inclusive of all the nations. That's what these missions calling is all about. Reaching of the nations, that they may bring their honor and glory into the city of God. But not everyone will be there. Look at verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Don't miss that. Before we go down the road of universalism and say everybody's good, it doesn't really matter that persevering to the end is of no consequence, that the decisions and the commitments and the values that we have in this life don't really matter just as long as we believe in something, just as long as we're not that guy or that girl, just as long as we don't commit those particular sins, Nothing unclean. Nothing that has not been washed completely by the righteousness of Jesus. Nothing that has not been saved from sin. Nothing unclean 
will ever enter this place. And by the way, that is wonderful news for us. It's so central to the gospel. Nothing unclean will be in our eternal home. That means all the uh, sin and uncleanness and affirmities in us will be gone and dealt with. And all of the sin of this world will be judged and removed and not present in the city of God. Won't be there. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be citizens of the city of God. But understand this. In this city, none of God's people will be left out. None of God's people will be excluded. They will be there. Be rest assured, O Christian, O follower of Jesus. You will be there. The whole community will be present. Last three things, a little bit more uh, briefly. We see these characteristics of the city of God. But a slightly different question. What will life be like for us when we're there? We see the metaphor that the church is the holy city of God. It's envisioned as the holy city of God. We see that that holy city is set in contrast to the unholy city, the great prostitute known as Babylon, that the glory of man will not be there, but only the glory of God, that his presence will fill it, and that all of God's people will be there. But what will life be like for those people? What will it be like? I see three things in the concluding verses here. I see that the holy city of God will be a people sustained by the eternal life of God. Look at the end of 21. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. The book of life, the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb to the middle of the city. Then we see this, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. We have the book of life, we have the river, the water of life, we have the tree of life. Where have we seen the tree of life before? It's been a while. The garden. Wow. If you remember, at the fall, what happened to them? They were what? Kicked out. An act of grace. Lest they eat of that, the tree of life, let's get, let's get them out. And they live forever in this condition. What an act of grace by God. But we see here that the sin issue has been dealt with. That Satan has been judged, that death has been defeated, that God is bringing an end to all of these things. And now he's saying, come back in. Eat of the tree of life. Eat again. 
that really being a part of this city, living in this city, will be an experience like this, that you will be sustained by the eternal life of Almighty God. You'll never die. You'll never decay. Death will be no more, he says. What hope for us as we are all decaying, the body is wasting away, there have been a number of folks, even in our little congregation, that have stared death in the face in the last year, and some in the last couple days. Someone they love. Death is a reality that is sad. It is tragic. It is a result of our sin. But the, the city of God does not have it anymore. It's no longer a part of the human experience. It's been completely defeated and removed. And all that we will know will be the feasting upon the all-sustaining life of God. I was talking to somebody this week about how I go to the gym sometimes. And my joints hurt sometimes because of that. And... We began to laugh a little bit, and, you know, we got inflammation here, like we're getting old. Here's the deal. We are wasting away. We just are. No matter how much ginseng we put in our tea, it ain't happening. We're going to die. I mean, that's where our bodies are taking us. We cannot avoid it. It's an unavoidable reality in this order. But in the next order, it will be irrelevant just like the sun. It'll be gone. We will not know what it means to decay, to waste away. Sin will not have that effect on our spirits or our bodies. We will only know the all-sustaining life of the living God. Is that your hope? If you love people, that's your hope. You're watching them. You're seeing their struggle. If you are aware at all about the frail nature of your human condition, this could not be better news. If you're completely out of touch with it, you don't understand the nature of sin, you're minimizing the reality of death, you're numb to it because everybody faces it, then this won't be hopeful for you. But for many of us, we've seen the tragedy of death and we're holding on to the hope of eternal life. And it's reserved for all those who are written in the book of life, for all those who believe and rely and depend upon the finished work of Christ, who say, yes, his resurrection is sufficient. If he's been raised from the dead and my faith in it helps me to have fellowship and union with his resurrection, guess what? I too will be raised from the dead. And because of that, I will never die again, Romans chapter 6. Never going to die. It's an awesome hope for us. That's what the city of God is like. The text goes on to say that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Wow. This leaves on the tree that bring healing to the nations reminds me of a moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And yes, I am referring to the movie. Because uh, I have to admit, I'm not a, I've never been a big C.S. Lewis reader. But I hear they're making a book out of it, the movie. Just like, right, Lord of the Rings, they made a book out of that movie, right? 
Yeah, I know, it's kind of sad. I've offended like 17 people right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's that scene where the witch and the dwarf and Edmund are traveling. They're trying to cross the river. They're heading towards Aslan. They're in, in hot pursuit of the other three. And as they're going through Narnia, it's, the snow's getting a little wet. Matter of fact, uh, the ice and the, uh, the trees are dripping. And then here and there, they begin to see green grass and moss at the base of the trees. And then they begin to hear the sound of running water as the river is seeming to thaw out. And then they see a party, right? The squirrel and the fox, and they're all celebrating. Creation is celebrating what's taking place. And they begin to see buds on the trees and leaves, and great change is taking place. And then as they saw the leaves on the birch trees, they saw a bee buzzing in the air. And the dwarf says this to the witch. This is no thaw. This is spring. What are we to do, he says? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is the work of Aslan. Right? That's what we see taking place here. The, the destruction of the winter. The new order where the presence of Aslan, the presence of God in the midst of his people is causing the reversing, the removal of the curse. And it is not a temporary thaw. No, it is the complete destruction of winter. Nothing more is cursed. We will be eternally sustained by the life of God. The last two things we see is that this will indeed be a place of worship. The holy city of God will be a people engaged in worship. Right? His servants will worship Him. Two words. You say, well, what will I be like? What will I be doing? You will be serving. You will be worshiping. It doesn't necessarily mean that all we're doing is a big long service of songs. Because our distorted understanding of worship, that's where we go. Yes, we will sing. That's an exciting thing for people who celebrate what God has done in their lives and the eternal impact that it has. We will sing. We will do that. But service and worship, I think, will be uh, life. It'll be life. That's all I can tell you right now. It'll be our lives, our dispositions, our attitudes, our words, our decisions. Our lives will be totally oriented to the worship and the service of the one who has made us his city. And last, I think sometimes we miss it. The text says that they will reign forever and ever. Do you know that we as God's people will participate in his reign? That 
when we hear the words, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, that the kingdom is at hand is indeed the gospel. Because as the people of God, we have been subject. You've got to remember the, the original readers of this. They have been subject to an oppressive rule that has persecuted them, that has killed them. But what we see here is that when the kingdom of God is finally consummated, what? We are no longer subject to an oppressive rule. Yes, we are submitted to the rule of God, but we are a people who now participate in it. We share in the kingdom rule of God. It's okay to hope for that, to be victorious, to rule and to reign, to be his priests who worship him, and yes, to be his citizens who rule and reign over all of the new order. 2 Timothy 2 says this, and I think it's in keeping with what Revelation is trying to say. If we endure with him, endurance, we will also what? Reign with him. That's what the city of God will be. For us who live in it, Right? It will be a worshiping of God. It will be an enjoyment of the all-sustaining life of God. And it will be a participation in the rule of God. That's the city. That's heaven. You may speculate about this, that, and the other thing. Fine. It's fun. It's, it can be a life-giving thing to do that. But let us not do that at the expense of just staring at, thinking about, the actual answer to the question that God has given. This is heaven. This is who we are in the end. This is our great expectation. To be the holy city of God. And I think this does inspire us to endurance. Some of you may be tired and exhausted spiritually. Maybe even skeptical. Maybe some unbelief seeping in. Maybe the lies and the lures of the world of Babylon, the great prostitute, have entered into your thoughts and your actions and attitudes. Maybe it's very subtle, but all too real. And it is our great expectation. It is the hope set before us. It is what Bunyan calls the celestial city that is set out for us as our eternal home, that all the more awakens us to faithfulness. Our hope causes us to hold on to the faith. I pray that that's what this series has done for you. This is what Bunyan says, and I'll close with it. The talk they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, and the spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and your talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. 
There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth. To wit, sorrow, sickness, affliction, or death. For the former things are passed away. In that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and visions of the Holy One. For there you shall see Him as He is. There also you shall serve Him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desire to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into an equipage fit to ride out with the King of Glory. The church is envisioned as the holy city of God. Will you join me there? Let that be our great expectation. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, you have set before us a hope of inexpressible joy to be with you, to see your face, to know death, crying, mourning, grief, no more. To see the effect of you in your power and righteousness, defeating all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. This is your work. We are your people. We long for our heavenly home in you. Would you bring us there by the Spirit, through Christ our Lord.